Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And the theme for this week is ejaculation. Slash Valentine's Day. That's right. (laughs) A most romantic topic. And we spent a lot of time puzzling over female ejaculation and... Guys, we haven't forgotten about ejaculation for you, although this time we present another puzzle, which is premature ejaculation, because this is something that affects even more men than female ejaculation affects women. Right. And it is definitely something that has been pathologized when we, you know, Kristen and I talk a lot about women's health issues or concerns that have been pathologized and whether it should be or not. And this is really no different. I mean, there are men who experience ejaculation very, very soon in the sexual process and who seek out medical treatment for that. But then we, we're going to get into the issue of like, okay, well, how do you define it? So many people define premature ejaculation differently. And is it just ejaculation that happens early or is it simply when your sexual partner is not pleased? Yeah, there's a lot of complexity to premature ejaculation and as well as the, the psychological repercussions too. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Let's get down to some ejaculation basics, shall we? Because it happens really fast at first, at least in terms of the fluid traveling through the urethra. It moves through the urethra at an astounding 28 miles per hour or 45 kilometers per hour for our Canadian listeners. Hello. Well, Kristen, that's faster than a Model T4. My goodness. My goodness. But then... It slows way, 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 way down as it exits the penis and enters the vagina or the anus or wherever it's going. Right. It slows down to get ready for this point zero zero one one miles per hour or point zero zero one seven kilometers per hour. And famed sex researcher Alfred Kinsey performed an experiment that found a long-distance ejaculation record of eight feet. I'm not kidding. He, like, laid down sheets on the floor and was like, fellas, have at it. Eight feet, that's pretty impressive, considering how much it slows down before it exits, or, like, as it exits the urethra. And it's usually not a whole lot of fluid, about one or two teaspoons on average, but there is a lot of stuff in that semen. Yeah, let's look at the nutritional information. Yes, sperm only makes up about 1% of semen. Then you have secretions from the prostate gland and vas deferens, as well as fructose, water, ascorbic acid, citric acid, protein, enzymes, zinc, phosphate, bicarbonate buffers, and uh, red number four. No, (laughs) not red. No, 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 no artificial, no artificial colors it's or sweeteners. Or, it's organic. It is 100% organic. But in terms of what's going on physically when this is happening, so we get the penis engorged with blood. The scrotum contracts and applies pressure on the testicles that are then drawn into the body as the fluid travels from the seminal vesicles outward. Yeah, so it's a whole... The whole assembly line almost. The pulley system. To, to get it out there. Um, so we've established what ejaculation is, but what is premature ejaculation? Uh, technically it's one of three forms of ejaculatory dysfunction. There's premature ejaculation, 
retarded ejaculation and retrograde ejaculation, which is when it goes back rather than forward. And it's actually listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorders. Right. And it's defined as ejaculation occurring without control on or shortly after penetration and before the person wishes it, causing marked distress or interpersonal difficulty. But the thing is, we don't have a 100% standard definition of it because you have the whole question of balancing the timing of ejaculation against your partner's or your own satisfaction with how long it takes. For instance, the American Neurological Association defines premature ejaculation as occurring sooner than desired, either before or shortly after penetration, causing distress to either one or both parties. But Masters and Johnson, also famed sex researchers from decades ago, provided a pretty subjective definition. They said that it was the man's inability to inhibit ejaculation long enough to satisfy his partner 50% of the time. Well, it's the satisfaction, uh, sex partner satisfaction, and also that psychological distress that it causes. You need to have that distress factor in there, too, clearly to meet that DSM uh, definition. So, and, and that's something that we don't... We haven't talked about that much on the podcast. We talk a lot about women, female sexual function and psychological distress. But this is an arena where we really get into male sexual function and psychological distress. But but there are some more concrete guidelines, although they are quite heteronormative as well, Caroline. That's right. One of the uh, characteristics of premature ejaculation that really plays a huge role in defining it is called the intravaginal ejaculatory latency time, or IELT. So basically, according to this idea, you are experiencing premature ejaculation if your IELT is always before or within about one minute of penetration or 8 to 15 Thrusts, But like Kristen said, the fact that the first letter in a defining characteristic of premature ejaculation is I for intravaginal, it's pretty heterospecific. But keep that in mind, because we're going to talk later in the second half of the podcast about how sexual orientation may or may not play into premature ejaculation and the, the more subjective guidelines. But moving into more of the, the medical specifics of premature ejaculation, there are two widely recognized types, primary, which is lifelong premature ejaculation, and secondary, which is more acquired or situational. And there are two additional proposed types of premature ejaculation, which are normal variable premature ejaculation, which is inconsistent and situational, and then premature-like ejaculation, which contains subjective perceptions of premature ejaculation, although your intravaginal ejaculatory latency time is normal. In other words, someone feeling insecure because he thinks that he's coming too soon, even though his IELT is normal, within the normal range, yeah, which is around five minutes. And speaking of rates and what is common and what is normal, the prevalence rate of premature ejaculation is one in three men. And according to a 2007 global survey, about a quarter of men across all age groups struggled with it. And a 2005 survey calculated an even higher prevalence rate of 30%. 
And we should mention that there is a 30% co-occurrence rate of premature ejaculation and erectile dysfunction. And we're not going to get into erectile dysfunction in depth in this podcast because it kind of deserves its own podcast. But in case you're wondering, those things can go hand in hand, but not all the time. It's actually uh, less common than you might think. But not surprisingly, it can have a negative impact not only on the person who is dealing with perhaps a low IELT, that intravaginal ejaculatory latency time, but also on the relationship with that person's sex partner. Yeah, this is coming from a 2014 study published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine, which we cited quite a bit in our previous episode on female ejaculation. But they found that 9% of women reported a low sex drive and sexual dissatisfaction when they were with a man who suffered from premature ejaculation. But 48% of these women said that the real problem was that their partners, their sexual partners, weren't paying enough attention to their needs, like kissing and caressing, and instead were more focused on boosting their performance or duration. And almost a quarter of those women also reported that the uh, the man's ejaculatory problems led to relationship breakups. And that's something just in routine Google searches that we were doing, looking for sources um, and experiences with premature ejaculation that came up a lot on message boards in terms of Guys being distressed about either getting into relationships or having relationships that broke up because of this issue. So it's a it's a very real factor in some relationships, for sure. Right. And this leads many people to seek out treatment. And some of the typical treatments include behavioral things like the squeeze or the stop and start technique, which is basically... Uh, stopping when you feel like you're about to reach orgasm, letting the urge pass, and then continuing. The squeeze technique is basically squeezing the penis until that urge subsides and then continuing. There's also the application of topical anesthetics, which for me as a lady with lady parts just makes me feel squeamish. Because it's numbing. Yeah. Like a, like a lidocaine. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't want lidocaine anywhere near. My lady bits. But that's also you find that kind of stuff, too, on certain kinds of condoms that mm-hmm. are the the long last condoms. Mm-hmm. It contains that kind of stuff to uh, desensitize the penis some so that they'll last longer. True. And in addition to topical anesthetics, you have oral medications, including antidepressants. This mm-hmm. is actually becoming a more and more common prescription for uh, premature ejaculation because uh, we, we we hear a lot about antidepressants depressing sexual function as well. And for that reason, certain antidepressants, particularly an SSRI called paroxetine, has been found to delay ejaculations. Uh, there was a randomized control trial which found that paroxetine delayed ejaculation from 1.5 minutes to 7.7 minutes. So pretty significant. And on top of that, too, because of the psychological aspect, because of the relationship aspect of it as well, counseling might be involved as well. But there are also some experimental treatments some people are looking into, too. Right, Caroline? Yeah, things like virtual reality treatment and also a desensitizing band that can be worn during masturbation. Not to mention herbal treatments that people seek out. Things like epimedium leaf extract, ginkgo biloba, Asian ginseng root. Who knows? I I don't... But probably not horny goat weed, Caroline. 
But like female ejaculation, premature ejaculation has been a medical mystery for a long time. And what, what's fascinating to see, though, with the the history of premature ejaculation, what doctors think about it, it's actually gone through certain distinct phases in terms of kind of the, the overarching model that doctors and scientists think that it originates from. And this is coming from an invaluable paper by Marcel D. Waldinger called The History of Premature Ejaculation. And he goes all the way back to ancient Greek writings that mention ejaculation ante portus, which means ejaculation before the gate. Before the gate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it didn't quite make it into the gate. Right. Outside the gate. Um, but it wasn't until the late 19th century where we have it first described as a disorder. So in 1887, you have the first case of, quote, rapid ejaculation in medical literature. Yeah. And then in 1908, we get the first psychoanalytic paper written about it by a student of Freud that paid a lot of attention to premature ejaculation's effect on the female partner. So this is when we first get into like, ah, oh, well, other people might not be happy with it. Yeah, and this kind of kicks off the first major period of premature ejaculation classification that Waldinger identifies, which is from 1917 to 1950, which is the neurosis and psychosomatic disorder phase. Um, so you have premature ejaculation thought to be a neurosis linked to unconscious conflicts, often treated with psychoanalysis, and you have the term ejaculation precox being introduced to describe premature ejaculation. So it's not it's not yet called premature ejaculation because, I mean, it's it's more of a they think it's more of a psychological thing, right? In nineteen in the nineteen thirties, we actually get the first drug developed to treat erectile dysfunction, and it's called Testafortan. And then in 1943, a German endocrinologist by the name of Bernhard Shapiro, sorry, sorry for my accent, proposed the psychosomatic model. And this basically says that premature ejaculation is a combination of an over-anxious constitution and an inferior ejaculatory apparatus as a point of least resistance for emotional pressure. This is also when we get the early recognition of the two types of premature ejaculation, primary versus secondary. And Shapiro was also the first to note, he didn't call it genetic, but he was the first to note that men who experienced this issue also had family members who were likely to experience the problem also. But in 1950, we move out of psychosomatic and into more of the learned behavior model. And this would last until... The early 90s. And this learned behavior viewpoint was really developed by Masters and Johnson, who focused on the performance anxiety driven cycle of premature ejaculation. So if it happens, you kind of freak out and then you're worried about it. And then the next time you start having sex, you start worrying that it'll happen again. And so the cycle continues. And so through that, they developed that squeeze technique to almost retrain the penis. And with the squeeze technique, not only do you squeeze the penis when you to, to stop sex when you think that you're about to prematurely ejaculate, you also sort of let it de-to-mess, de-engorge a little bit, and just kind of chill out. And then you start going again, and it will re-engorge, and then you just do that over and over again, which apparently has has its successes, but also obviously has its 
detractions as well because it it can inhibit the flow of sexual activity. Right. But their squeeze technique actually was built off of an earlier stop-start technique, which we mentioned earlier, which was developed in 1956 by, I'm not kidding, urologist James Siemens. Oh, man, that's perfect. Yeah, he just he was the first to describe this stop start masturbation technique, not necessarily just with sex, but also with masturbation. But Masters and Johnson were saying that this performance anxiety really stemmed from the fact that they believed that the men who experienced it had relied on rapid ejaculation and rapid orgasms earlier in life and that it just became a habit that had to be unlearned. So basically, if you're used to either sneaking in sex or masturbation so that nobody catches you and you're used to like, oh, this has to be fast, it has to be fast, it's just a habit that you've developed that has uh, created a lot of performance anxiety in your adult life and it has to be unlearned. But then once we get to 1990 to 2005, we enter the neurobiology and psychopharmacology phase. And this is when we start learning about how lifelong premature ejaculation, that primary premature ejaculation, has neurobiological and genetic underpinnings. And this is also when those SSRI or antidepressant treatments begin to emerge And in 1998, notably, we have the first successful oral drug developed to treat erectile disorder, which is produced by Pfizer, which is going to lead to a new medical discipline of sexual medicine. Because, you know, if you're Pfizer, you're like, hey, this seems like a common problem. We're going to make a pill, going to make a lot of money off of it. And that leads us into the present phase, which really focuses on the pharmaceutical industry and pursuing the genetics behind this issue. And so this is when we've gotten a lot of DNA research that reveal more links with that lifelong or primary uh, premature ejaculation. And so what scientists are looking more closely at now are certain um, genetic mutations in some men that might interfere with what's called the central serotonergenic and dopaminergenic system, your serotonin and dopamine, in other words, that is then associated with the mechanics that influence your IELT. So they think it has to do with your neurotransmitters that are released and produced as you're having sex as sort of setting off that physiological premature ejaculation. And they have uncovered some genetic links, but it's not fully understood yet, probably because of the different kinds of premature ejaculation that men experience as well as the uh, still the subjectivity of it, mm-hmm. this kind of vague definition that happens. Um, and we're going to get into more of those nuances of premature ejaculation and things that might or might not influence it when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the show. So in the first half of the podcast, we talked about uh, what doctors know about premature ejaculation, which is a a lot, but still not enough to know exactly how to precisely treat it for this commonly cited statistic of one in three men experiencing it. But we do know that masturbation is not a likely culprit. Guys, 
if you're experiencing premature ejaculation, masturbation can actually be your friend. Yeah, because masturbating before sex can slow down this whole process. Dr. Debbie Herbenick over at the Kinsey Institute says that masturbation can actually help men retrain their ejaculatory habits by employing that stop-start method that we mentioned earlier. But we mentioned the whole heteronormative definition of, for instance, the IELT earlier. So what what about that issue? What about gay men versus straight men? Is this a global universal man problem, or is one man more likely to experience it over another? Well, the question is a little bit, Difficult to conclusively answer because, as with a lot of research on sexuality, the framework for premature ejaculation has largely been among hetero men having sex with vaginas. Um, But there was an article published in GQ about premature ejaculation that interviewed a sex columnist who said that gay guys rarely inquire about premature ejaculation, which prompted Dan Savage to wonder whether it's more of a straight guy thing, because as he wrote, there is no premature, in quotes, ejaculation when it comes to two guys, because it's just as he sort of framed it. And Dan Savage, for those of you who don't know, is a really well-known sex columnist and controversial to some who are cringing that I'm mentioning his name on this podcast. But he is a gay man and has experience directly with gay sex. And from his standpoint, there's just no premature about it because of the nature of gay sex. Right. So it's an issue of efficiency. Yes. He put it. He put it that way. Right. Yeah. And and clearly th- that's going to be a different dynamic when it comes to men and women having sex, because as a lot of us know, it, it can often take longer for women to orgasm. And the fact that two in five women rarely come solely through vaginal penetration. Right. And so studies have found that premature ejaculation is the least reported of the sexual dysfunctions among gay and bisexual men. Yeah, there was a study looking at this uh, in April 2013. It was focused specifically on sexual dysfunctions in Belgian HIV positive gay men. So very specific study sample. And among that study population, there was an 18 percent premature ejaculation self-report rate. So lower than that one in three number. But again, maybe it's just because we haven't looked into it closely enough. Yeah, there was a 2009 study in the International Society for Sexual Medicine Journal And 42% of the respondents in the study reported some form of sexual dysfunction. And the main ones were performance anxiety, low sexual desire, and pain during sex. Premature ejaculation just was not one of those main sexual concerns. Yeah, and they compared this, the study authors compared it to another study among straight men who had a 21% report of past year Premature ejaculation. So still, though, not as high as one in three. Um, But the study authors wrote that, quote, comparing sexual dysfunction symptoms in men who have sex with women and men who have sex with men and drawing conclusions about their differences may not be appropriate as the two groups have different cultural norms, interpretation of sexual dysfunction questions, sexual expectations and gender sex partners. Mm -hmm. So. We might not be able to draw inferences from premature ejaculation from gay men based on the commonality of it among straight men because it's a completely different kind of sex. But really interesting to see how perhaps um, 
intra-anal ejaculatory latency time might be quite different than intravaginal ejaculatory latency time. But the question that brings up once we look at this nuance of sexual orientation and how that may or may not so much change this number, it leads to this question of whether it is really as prominent of a dysfunction as we think of with that one in three number that is bandied about so often or whether it's something that we are slowly being primed to think of more as a dysfunction because we are in the pharmaceutical age. Right, where pharmaceutical companies are creating a medical solution, quote-unquote, to all sorts of, uh, quote-unquote, problems. Yeah, and really, we have Viagra to thank for that because Viagra is such a moneymaker. Right, and so, yeah, pharmaceutical companies are looking at the profits from Viagra and thinking, well, God, if I can prey on other sexual insecurities, then surely I can make a pretty penny as well. And so there was this 2009 New York Times article that talked all about this and mentioned that there's little actual concrete evidence to suggest that there is an epidemic of premature ejaculation in the way that drug commercials or men's health articles will tell you that there is. And the article also called into question that one in three statistic. Um, it said that it's actually based on a 1999 report on sexual dysfunction in the U.S., which has been disputed by some sexologists because it was based on a sociology survey from 1992 that was not created by epidemiologists to answer sexual health questions. Mm. So that one in three statistic might not be so concrete after all. Right, because the study from 2012 in the Journal of Sexual Medicine, our favorite journal lately, found a 13% self-reported premature ejaculation prevalence rate. And this was focused on... Uh, an Asia-Pacific region sample population. So it also, though, seems like whatever, if you change the population group that you're looking at, the numbers start to change, too, which is really interesting. Well, yeah, because so much of this has to do with the very subjective idea of sexual satisfaction. And what does sexual satisfaction mean for different populations, both geographically, but also in terms of your sexual orientation and who you prefer to have sex with? Well, and the kind of sex, too, that you are watching. This was something that I I didn't find any study data on, but I had to wonder whether the accessibility of porn has maybe artificially inflated premature ejaculation self-reporting. Maybe that is where that proposed category of the premature-like ejaculation where guys are perfectly in the the normal IELT range, but they think that they're coming too soon because they're watching porn where perhaps guys are lasting a really long time. Right. And a, a psychologist who's quoted in that New York Times article points out like, hey, everybody, calm down. There's fast and slow versions of people in all categories of life. They say they're slow and fast walkers, slow and fast eaters, slow and fast breathers. And so when you tell someone they're a fast ejaculator, it makes it sound like there is a right time to ejaculate. And if you ejaculate before, it's a medical problem. Yeah. So a lot of the research left me, at least, with a number of question marks. Like, clearly, this is an issue for a lot of men and a lot of the sex partners of these men. Mm -hmm. But I I, I feel I do feel like that one in three number is being thrown in our faces a lot for a very specific marketing purpose. Yeah. I mean, you have 
both men and women being told that they are dysfunctional when it comes to sexuality because you, you're telling a lot of women that you're taking too long or why haven't you had an orgasm? And you're telling men, men are being told, well, you're you're orgasming too fast and you're not giving your partner a chance to achieve orgasm herself. And so, I mean, everybody's insecurities are sort of being played upon. Yeah, and this is still in, in the backdrop of uh, culture and society where... So much of sex, even though it might be out, you know, we might consume a lot of porn, we might see sex in TV and movies, but in our day-to-day lives, talking about sex is still largely taboo. Sexual communication is still, uh, you know, a big challenge for couples, whether they're one-night stand couples or long-term couples. So, yeah, it's it's definitely a complex issue that I think we'll need more than SSRI antidepressants to solve. Yeah, but we're also talking about this as uh, two humans with vaginas Mm -hmm. who don't experience this kind of physiological mechanism at all. So, fellas, we really want to hear from you on this issue or anyone who has been in a relationship where premature ejaculation has been an issue. We want to hear from you on this topic. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I've got a letter here from Elaine about our episode on a brief history of panties. And she she pointed out that she has no problem with the word panties. So thank you for noting that, Elaine. But she had some insight into the woolen underwear that we both cringed at the thought of. She writes, about the wool... It actually breathes much better than cotton and is highly absorbent, so absorbent that for moms who use cloth diapers, there are wool covers called soakers that absorb any leaks. Alpaca is super soft, I believe. It's more expensive than sheep's wool, and I think it's up there with merino wool from sheep in terms of softness. So, if you've had an itchy wool sweater, it wasn't merino or alpaca, and maybe you have an experienced wool that can be non-itchy, but it's out there. So apparently, wool and undies could be quite comfortable and absorbent. She goes on to say, My Girl Scout troop had some training with our outdoor expert before our backpacking camping trip, and he told us, Cotton is rotten and should be forgotten in favor of wool. Wool wicks sweat away from your body. Cotton retains sweat as you hike, for example, making you cold or just wet. Anyway, just sharing some facts about wool that explain why actually it may have made a lot of sense as an undergarment and is still used today for babies who wear cloth diapers. So thanks. Uh, So I have an email here from Molly. Uh, She says, uh, I was wondering if you'd done an episode that covers mother-daughter relationships and touches on some of the anecdotal stuff mom did tell me stories of your own as well as listeners. I heard and loved your podcasts on the history of the advice column, but I'm really curious about the history of advice given from mother to daughter. The demographic of your audience spans a large range of ages. I was thinking that generational differences are bound to pop up in terms of advice people receive from their mothers and think that that could be a really interesting and funny thing to explore. Your history of panties episode made me think of this. You mentioned the cotton underwear talk, and it reminded me of a piece of advice my mother instilled in me. It's pretty silly the kinds of things you just take as fact of life without questioning science or reasoning when it comes from your mom. This kind of thing happened to me a few weeks ago. I was hooking up with a new guy and I had put my PJs on. My mom always stressed not to wear underwear or a bra to bed because, quote, it gives everything time to breathe. So without thinking, I climb into bed commando and he's a little shocked as if it's like some gift to him. 
He mentions it in this annoying, all-knowing tone, and I'm caught off guard. Immediately, my brain just goes, hey, this is a fact of life, and you don't wear those to bed. It's unhealthy. Instead of trying to explain this fact of life out loud, I just rolled my eyes and told him it seriously wasn't meant to impress anyone. So she says, thanks for reading. Love the show. It was one of the best discoveries I made this summer. I listened while I worked as a housekeeper. If that's not a loaded gender-related topic, I don't know what is. Shared it with my mom, who was really taken to it as well. Looking forward to hearing more great episodes in the future. So thank you for listening, Molly. Mother-daughter stuff mom never told you, fans. I love it. Intergenerational. Ah, love it. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is where you can send us your emails. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with our sources, if you want to learn more about the science of premature ejaculation, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.